This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you'd open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're uh, in the middle of a series on the book of James, and we wrap up the first chapter today. Uh, We're kind of moving along here. This is a series that will probably take us into the late winter, maybe the early spring of 2010, so uh, we're going to be here for a little while. But today we're finishing up. We're just doing two verses today is all, but after we read them, uh, I think we'll feel like that's more than enough for one day. There's uh, plenty here. So beginning in verse 26, chapter 1, the book of James. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, I just want to thank you this morning that you are a God who reveals yourself. You're not hiding from us, but you're a God who has revealed yourself through the scripture. Thank you that you speak flawlessly, perfectly, truthfully from the scripture to reveal yourself. And we pray that that would be our experience this morning, that as we jump into this text and try to open it up. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would illumine our hearts, that we might understand your word today. We pray that you would give us a fresh glimpse into the Savior, Jesus Christ, and his work for us. And we pray that based on that, that our hearts would be motivated to be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. So God, we realize we need your help for what's about to happen here. We need your help to be attentive listeners. We need your help to understand and we need your help to have wills that are transformed so that we do and we act in response to what we hear. So come Spirit of God and help us for that is a task much greater than us. But we're confident you will lead us and that you will speak to us because you're a good God and you have our best in in view, God. I pray personally that you give me strength and mental clarity to proclaim your word to your wonderful folks here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've launched into this book of James uh, over the past weeks, it's, uh, it's really been a book that I found very powerful for a number of reasons. One reason is that it is immensely practical. Every week I read a text out of James, I just never have to wonder, well, I wonder how I respond to that. It is very application-driven scripture. Very, very clear. And and as I read it, I feel like, boy, James is reading my mail. James is reading me. And the Scripture has that effect on us. We read the Scripture, but the Scripture, in fact, reads us. It opens our heart as it shows us God. And And it relates to where we live. And James, in particular, just relates to where we live our lives. I mean, he starts the letter out talking about how to respond in the middle of trials. We all have trials, and, and we all often don't know how to respond to those trials. He, he follows that by saying, here's what you do if you need wisdom. I mean, who doesn't need wisdom in their life as we face decisions and 
trials and, and even blessings in our life. We need wisdom. He, he then goes on to talk about how are we to relate to riches. And we are rich people on an economic scale and on a historic scale. We are, we are people who are the part of the haves and not the have-nots. And, and so he talks about how do we respond to our riches? How, how do we stand firm when temptation comes, like daily, hourly? How do we respond? What's the nature of temptation, and how do we respond? And then he talks about what we looked at last week, that we're called to be a hearer and a doer of the Word, one who hears God's Word and one who responds. And the passage we're looking at today is really a continuation of that theme, being a hearer and a doer of the Scripture, God's Word. That passage about being a hearer and a doer really starts back in verse 18. So we really have to go back to verse 18 to understand what the passage today is about. Verse 18, James writes, Of his own will, that is God, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This bringing us forth means he gave us birth. It's birth language. And what he's saying is that God gave us new life that God gave us new birth, that God granted us a new inner person by the word of truth, that we were all separate from God, we were lost from God, we were distant from God, and then one day we received truth that changed us. It could have been a friend over coffee that told you the message of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation, however you want to say it. It could have been a sermon you heard where someone preached on television or in a church building or somewhere where you heard someone preach. It could have been something you read, a gospel booklet or a book or something like that. But the word of truth that you needed a Savior, Jesus Christ, that came to you and God then brought you forth through that word, and gave you life. And he immediately says in verse 19, so be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So he's talking about be quick to be a hearer of God's word. So God's word gave you new life, but God's word also helps you grow now that you are a Christian. But to grow, you have to hear God's word or read God's word, and then you have to act on it. He says if you just are a hearer only, you deceive yourself. Because you'll think you're making progress as you gain knowledge, but you're not making progress. You're gaining knowledge and you're deceiving yourself if you don't act because you think you're becoming mature and all you're doing is gathering information and not a changed life. So he says you have to be a doer. So be a hearer of the word and then be a doer and that's how we grow. We're to receive the implanted word. The word of God speaks to us. His spirit speaks to us. And we receive that and we act upon it and that's how we grow. So that's the pattern. You were brought forth, you were given birth by the word of God and you will mature as a Christian as you are a hearer and a doer of the word. So someone could be reading James and say, that's great, what do you mean by that? I know what hearing the word is, but what do you mean be a doer? And James will say, aha, glad you asked. And he's going to explain to us what it means to be a continual hearer and doer of the word. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, before we even talk about the first thing he mentions, let's talk about that word. Because we often think of the word religious, the adjective religious or the noun religion as as negative terms. And they can be negative terms if it just means external formality with no internal reality. Boy, I made up a rhyme on the spot. That was amazing. But, uh, so jot that one down. I can't repeat it, but someone tell me what I just said after the service. 
Uh, so if, if it's just external and there's no internal, then religious is a bad word, as he says here. But religion in itself is a neutral word. We, we kind of you know, we kind of view it as a bad word, but it's not. I, I'm kind of for bringing back that word in the way the Bible does. It can be a good word, religion. Um, it just means what kind of religion? Is it worthless religion, as he says in verse 26? Or is it pure and undefiled religion? Pure and undefiled religion's a good thing. Worthless religion's a bad thing. And we can have either, and this is what he's talking about here. He said, if someone thinks that he's religious, and often that word is used to talk about public worship, or worship services, or religious activity. So he's kind of saying, if someone thinks they're religious, they're doing religious activity, which everyone in the room is doing today, by virtue of the fact you're here. So if someone thinks he's doing religious activity, that he's a religious person, our culture might say he's a spiritual person. If someone thinks that's who they are, but they do not bridle their tongue, they deceive their heart, and their religion is worthless. So the first thing he says, to be a doer of the word, the first thing he's going to go after is controlled speech. Someone who really is a hearer and a doer of God's word, someone who has met God, who knows God, one evidence is that they'll have controlled speech. He's going to talk about three things here, and that's the first. Now I want to make this point, that he's not talking about everything that should be... um, should be evident in a real Christian's life. He's not talking about everything, but he's going to talk about three things, three important things. And the first one is controlled speech. See, the person who is genuinely a Christian will have an effect, it will have an effect on their speech. Their faith will affect their speech. If someone says they're religious, but they don't control their speech, then he says their religion is worthless. That means it's empty. It's meaningless. It's powerless. It's a sham. What he's saying is that you can gather on Sunday and sing songs and talk and and have religious-oriented speech, pray prayers. You could do that, but if it doesn't affect your speech throughout the week, then your speech here is ultimately rather meaningless. Your Sunday worship is empty if your Monday speech is uncontrolled, is what he's saying. Your Sunday worship is meaningless if your Monday speech is uncontrolled. Because if we've been brought forth by the Word, if the Spirit of God lives in us, if we're a new person, one sign of that will be our speech will change. If we have a new heart, we will have a new tongue. One author said, if the heart is right, the tongue will show it. If the heart is right, the tongue will show it. In what way will the tongue show it? Well, the tongue will show it by having controlled speech. Controlled speech. He uses this example of a bit in a horse's mouth, a, a, a bridle. He says uh, in verse 26, if he does not bridle his tongue. I think the NIV says, if he does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. Just like a, uh, a bit and bridle will control a, a horse, the direction of a horse, so... Uh, our lives are controlled by the control of our tongue. That's, he's going to talk about that in great detail in chapter 3. When we get there, we will look at that in some detail. But I just want to talk about it a little bit today. Because I think it's very important that he starts with this topic, controlled speech. Keeping a tight rein on our speech. And I think that's important for us because church folk can be given to very offensive speech. Very offensive speech. 
Here's how we work in the church, oftentimes moralistically. We have this list of words, and I'm not going to mention them. You know what they are. It's the words that you're thinking of right now and shouldn't be thinking of. But it's, we have this list of words that you're not supposed to say. And I think some of those words would have biblical proof. I mean, words about cursing God and such, words of, uh, that are filthy, uh, inappropriate sexual language used in a wrong way. Certainly, Scripture would forbid certain speech. I think we also probably add words to there that we think you shouldn't say for various reasons that are just sort of cultural rules and not necessarily biblical ones. But we sort of have a list. We each have a list of rules, and maybe your household has some lists. Kids are allowed to say this. Kids aren't allowed to say that. We sort of have this list of rules, and we think that if we don't say words on that list, then we've got this one down. We've got controlled speech. But, but I wonder about that. I think there's a lot more than just avoiding certain bad words. Like, what about gossip? G- gossip words wouldn't be on that list. Those aren't, gossip words aren't cuss words. And yet I could so easily slip into gossip, to breaking a confidence. How about that? Someone shares something privately in a confidence, in confidence and asks that we keep that confidence and uh, then we go to someone, and here's what happens. Hey, I, I, need to, I want to let you know about something. I'm really not supposed to tell anybody this, but I'm just telling you. <laughs> How many times have we said that? I'm just telling you, and I'm not supposed to. Of course, right then, I told them I wouldn't, so now I'm lying. And uh, I just want to tell you, because I know you'll make this a matter of prayer. So now I want to lie to someone, which is bad words, really bad words, like makes the list of top ten. Some potty words aren't on the top 10. Lying is on the top 10. And uh, so I'm going to lie over here and, uh, and introduce you for the purpose of prayer so that we can take this to the Lord together. We do that, don't we? Or, or how about judgmental or self-righteous speech? I can think or say, I would never do that. It, it, putting myself above someone else's actions, which isn't to say what they did was wrong, It's just wrong that I assess myself righteously as one who would never sin in that category. Judgmental speech. How about this one? We are specialists in this. Critical speech. I mean, some of us feel like it's our ministry to be critical. To be critical of leaders. I've got the gift of criticizing leaders or criticizing other people or criticizing. We do this in the church. Criticizing other Christians who are different than us in some area. I'm not talking about heretics. I'm not talking about cults. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about honest dialogue about doctrine. That's appropriate. But I'm talking about assessing people's motives and, and speaking ill of them because they're different or do something different than us. That kind of critical speech. Well, what I don't like about him or what they do that I really don't like, or have you heard this? I can't believe they do that. We've all been there. Critical speech. I heard a story or read a story this week about John Wesley and uh, the circuit rider preacher who uh, ultimately was kind of the the founder, laid the foundation for uh, the Methodist denomination, Methodism. And uh, I heard a story where he was preaching, and as he was preaching, there was a lady in the audience uh, who, who was known to be very critical. And I'm not looking at anyone while I do this, because I don't think of any of you that way. But he's looking at someone who's very critical. And this lady's sort of giving him what we would call the evil eye, but I guess it's the critical eye. She's just sort of, maybe her head's askance, and she's sort of looking like, ah, just, 
you know, just checking them out, very critical in her view. And it's great to preach in a church, so that's not the case. We have more people leaning forward than giving me that right there, so I'm very grateful for that. But nonetheless, she, he was preaching, and, uh, you know, it's a few hundred years ago, and he was wearing uh, one of those bow tie type things, and at the end of the service, she just came up to him and said, uh, the streamers on your tie are too long, and that offends me. Obviously, there to be a hearer of the word. Um, so that's what she said to him. He's got these streamers that come down. The streamers in your tire are too long, and they offend me. So Wesley just looked around and said, any ladies here have any scissors on you? And lady produced some scissors. He gave them to Miss Critical Church Lady and gave her the scissors and said, well, here, why don't you trim them to your liking? So he stepped, and she trimmed and cut the streamers off really short the way she liked it. Is that the way you like it? Is that okay? And she said, yes. And then he took the scissors out and back from her and said, ma'am, please stick out your tongue because it is too long and it offends me. <laughs> and took the scissors. No, he didn't cut her tongue off. But <laughs> you understand the point that it was her speech that was far more offensive than his attire. It was her tongue that, that was the most offensive thing. Pretty bold. I, pretty bold that he did that. But uh, that was the most offensive thing. That we can be critical and pick out small things about other people, our spouse, our children, the people in the care group, the people who didn't show up this week at care group, right? We can be critical of so many different folks, the person that ignored me, the person that didn't acknowledge what I did for them, critical, critical, the person who does something different than me, the person that I think was thinking something about me because of the way they looked at me, critical. We can just do that. I mean, we, we can. Kent Hughes said that we need to keep a tight rein on our tongues because often we have galloping tongues. Just riding in the wind, freely expressing everything that comes to mind. The galloping tongue which needs to be reined in. And our tongues gallop in all kinds of ways, grumbling and complaining. That's a galloping tongue. Listen, grumbling and complaining is not on the list of bad words. So I can assume I'm okay because I'm not on the list of bad words. But when I grumble and complain, I'm expressing, uh, uh, you know, just an, an ungrateful heart to God. That's actually worse than some of the words that are on the list. Last Sunday, last Saturday, eight days ago, last Saturday, we moved. Uh, in the area, but we moved, and so, you know, you've moved, it's a long day, we had some great help, so it was, we weren't doing it by ourselves, but it's a lot of work any way you look at it, and so I came in Sunday having moved on Saturday, I probably don't need to say anything else, and I was going to get up here and preach, and so like 10 minutes before the meeting, I greet a friend, a good friend of mine in the church, and he comes up and says, how's it going, and I just told him, I'm distracted, or I'm about to get up and lead this whole meeting. I'm distracted, I'm tired, we had a big move, I've got all this stuff to sort out. Da, 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 da. I just kick into complaining. Now my tongue's about to be used in the worship of God to lead you, and 10 minutes before worship time, uh, I'm already worshiping uh, myself through complaint. And da, da, da. Now I got with him after the meeting and confessed my complaint, asked him to forgive me. I mean, how about, hi, how are you doing? Isn't it great to be here? I mean, how about taking an interest in him? I just started, rah, rah. thankfully wasn't a guest. I think I have more discernment than that. <laughs> Welcome to Grace Church. Rah, rah, rah. You know, I didn't do that. I just did that, let my hair down with someone I'm comfortable with. I just revealed my real heart to someone that I knew. 
That's right before worship. I mean, that's right before we are here exclaiming the holiness of God. Complaining speech. It's, it's not just to avoid certain speech either, but, but the, the really to keep a, have control is also to use our speech in good ways, to encourage one another, to build each other up, to speak words of praise and thanksgiving and appreciation. We can use our tongue to, to build people up, to recognize God's work in their lives, to use our tongue in, in healing ways. The tongue can be used to bring reconciliation to a broken relationship. The tongue can be used to confess sin and ask forgiveness and express humility. The tongue can be used to speak words of life. The Bible says encourage one another and build each other up. The Bible makes the point that you can use your tongue to build someone up in their faith. That's amazing that you can speak in such a way that someone can get a better glimpse of God and can be closer to God. Using our tongue in a positive way. We also want to avoid, uh, we also want to avoid silence. At certain times when we should be using our tongue and we don't. When we could be making a witness for the gospel rather than keeping our mouth shut with fear of man. Or when we, when God would call us, God's word would call us to have courage and not the fear of man but the fear of God. And, and bring a word of admonition or correction even to someone in a redemptive way. So we could keep a silent tongue and then we're not controlling our tongue. We're just avoiding its use by just sitting back and not saying anything. That's not right. There's times when we should speak up. But that's the controlled tongue, controlled by the Word of God, controlled by the Holy Spirit which lives in us to speak words of life to other people and to avoid both cursing, the words which should be on the list, but also to avoid gossip and slander and complaint and divisiveness and bickering and uh, murmuring and all these kinds of things, angry speech filthy speech, all kinds of things that we can do. So that's what James says. Now, here's, here's what's kind of amazing about this is that the Bible elsewhere teaches us that our speech is a kind of a barometer or an index of what's in our heart. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 12. He said, if a tree has good fruit, it's a good tree. If a tree has bad fruit, you'll know it's a bad tree. And then this is what he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So like the fruit tells the health of the tree, the words tell the spiritual condition of the heart of the speaker. So my words are an exact indicator of where I am at any given time. And when we sin, we can obviously repent. I mean, the little incident I had of complaining for it didn't mean that my whole life's over and wrecked and I'm no longer a Christian. No, God showed me that. I was able to repent to my friend and able to worship the Lord, and, and uh, so there's redemption when we sin, but it rec- it, our, our words reflect who we are. We could even say it this way in our culture, I think. What we communicate represents who we are, because communication in our culture is more than just words. I reflect what's in my heart not only through my speech, but through my status on Facebook, through Twitter, through comments that I make on a blog. These are reflective of my heart as well. These are reflective of my character as well. That's communication, what I say in an email. You know, I'm not exempt from this because I don't talk on the phone, I just text. What I text represents what's in my heart as well. So, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
I think, as I consider this passage, and when we get to chapter 3, for sure it's there, I think when I consider this, I I realize that God's assessment of my communication is much higher than mine. It's the seriousness of it. I mean, here's the reality. If you said to me, if I'd never read this, if I knew what I know about God, but I'd not read this section, and you said to me, okay, we want to talk about pure religion, not external formality, but real internal pure religion. Give us some examples. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about genuine faith, when you think about living a Christian life in a sincere way, when you think about being a genuine believer, what does that look like? First thing that comes to your mind, speech would not be the first thing I would say. I mean, it probably wouldn't even make my first 20, my top 20. I'd have all kinds of things. Well, a Christian doesn't do this, and a Christian doesn't do this. I'd probably start with reading your Bible and praying or something like that, the spiritual disciplines, or worship. I I don't know where I would start, but I doubt I'd start where James does, which is speech. Here's an application today. We're going to talk in detail about speech, chapter 3. But here's a point of application. May we just ask the Lord to help us to elevate speech as a category for discipleship in our lives that registers at the same level that it does for God. May speech just carry the same level of importance with me that it does with God. May I be as concerned about gossip and coarse jesting and uh, slander and anger. May I be as concerned grumbling. May I be as concerned about that as God does. Lord, just give give me a fear of you. Give me a concern in my soul, a sobriety. That's a prayer to start with. God, just help me to see this as you do. And then by your grace, change my heart so that I will speak words of life. Okay, the second thing he talks about, I'm going to talk about last. So I'm going to talk about the third thing he talks about next, which is what he says in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the the third thing that he talks about here, the second thing in this message, is that pure religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world, to avoid worldliness, we could say, or to not be affected by the world. Now, what he's not talking about here is just the creation in general. When he says world, I mean, world can mean the whole world, all of the creation of planet Earth. That could be the world. And he's not saying just avoid all that. Don't interact with anybody. Hide away. Sort of, uh, some of us can have a temptation toward this. Sort of just live an insular life where you just have no contact or try to avoid contact with the world. That could be a temptation for some. For some, uh, that's not a temptation. Actually, the opposite could be a temptation where we just run headlong into the culture without very much discernment. So he's not saying just avoid it altogether. You can't do that. And that's not the way Jesus lived his life, for instance. That's not the way we're called to live our lives with a total avoidance of everyone and everything around us. What he's talking about is rather to avoid the mindset of the world, to avoid the worldview of those who don't know the Lord, to avoid the sort of desires and assumptions of the world. See, people who don't know Christ, the world, That's the world, people who are not in relationship with God. They live their lives with a certain set of assumptions. And a primary one is that there is no God. I mean, that we're living for ourselves, that this is all there is. And so he's saying, don't be stained by the world. Don't let the world's mentality, 
the life of the world. Don't allow that to affect your thinking. Don't think like the world. Don't think as if there is no God. Don't think that you won't give an account for your life. Don't think that that there's joy that will be found outside of God. Don't think that there's real life purpose, that you can have a meaningful life apart from knowing the God that created you. Don't think that way. Don't spend like the world, thinking that the accumulation of more stuff means the accumulation of more life and more joy. Don't just embrace all of the entertainment just like the world would. Um, don't eat or drink just like the world necessarily. Don't, uh, don't have the same goals and aspirations for your life that the world would apart from God. Now, obviously, if, if someone in the world's desires to have a good marriage and my desires to have a good marriage, those are similar. But my desire to have a good marriage is to be different. It's ultimately to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to bring glory to God as I love Ginger. So the purpose of our marriage is different. It's not just my happiness. It's serving her and honoring the Lord, loving her, honoring the Lord, caring for her as a way to reflect Christ's care for his church. So you see, on the one level, it could look like we had the same view as the world. I want to have a good marriage, of course. But if we break that down to purpose, it's different. Same goals. The same, do we have the same goals or the same purpose as the world? He's saying, don't do that. The world system is anything mature in his commentary at the back table that we sell. Matir said this, anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus over our lives, that's the world. Not just big sins, but worldliness is anything that is at odds with Christ ruling over my life. What he's saying is don't just live like an unbeliever. May your life, here's pure religion is not just live like an unbeliever, except, you know, here at 12 o'clock on Sunday, you're at church. And maybe two hours a week you do something extracurricular like go to care group. But otherwise, all your thoughts and all your life, it just blends in. There's no distinction between you and the world. He says don't live like that. Don't be stained by the world. Don't be tainted with the same mindset so that you are living in the same way save you're a part of this club on Sunday morning. You attend this meeting on Sunday morning. So you've got that small place where you do your religious thing, and then the rest of your life is all yours. That religion is meaningless, James says. That's empty. To be stained, but to live like the world, to be stained like the world. He's going to say it more strongly in chapter 4. He says that friendship with the world is enmity towards God. Friendship with the world is hatred, is what that means towards God. If you love the way the world thinks, and you love the way the world lives, and you love the goals of the world, that is, you want to live your life really apart from the lordship of Christ, then you hate God, is what the Bible says. That's not my interpretation. That's literally what it says in James chapter 4. So we don't want to be stained. The NIV says don't be polluted by the world. Now, please, don't hear what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying avoid everyone in the world. We're not to separate ourselves from sinners. We're to separate ourselves from sin. We're to be in the world, the Bible says, without being of the world. That is, we live a normal life. We have jobs. Uh, we have friendships. We have recreation. Uh, we earn and spend money. We do things like we're to be in the world. We're to be interacting with coworkers and neighbors, and family members. We're to be appreciating music and art, and we're to do everything that people in the world do, but just with a different purpose, not being of the world, having their goals and their mindset. 
So I think that hopefully I'm not to the place of beating a dead horse. That makes sense there. Being a doer of the word is to have a different heart, to be separate from sin, to live in the world without embracing its values. So how do we do the word? Well, let's go back. First of all, the word is is what brings us forth. God saves us through the message of the scripture, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. We receive that. We're Christians, and then we grow by being hearers and doers of the Word, looking into the Word like it's a mirror and then responding to what we see. That's how we grow as a Christian. And what does that doing look like? Well, here's a couple things. A new life is reflected in new speech, and a new life is reflected in a new heart with different values than the surrounding culture. And not only that, but new life is reflected in care for the needy. That's the next thing he talks about. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Let me say something about that before we talk about care for the needy. Religion that is pure and undefiled. He's, He's contrasting pure religion with worthless religion. See, in verse 26 he says, the person who doesn't change their speech, their religion's worthless. But pure religion before God the Father is this. So he's contrasting two. There's worthless religion which is, I say I'm a Christian, I go to church, but my speech isn't changed any other time, like it always was. Okay, so, but pure religion and undefiled religion is something different. It's a faith that's not only external, but it's a faith that's internal. And it's a faith that is connected to Jesus Christ. Because who is the one who is pure and undefiled? Pure and undefiled religion is a religion that is connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the one who's pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled religion is not me doing my best, me cleaning up, me becoming moral, me joining a church and buying a Bible. That's not pure and undefiled religion if I'm just doing that to make myself right with God. Pure and undefiled religion is coming to Jesus Christ who is pure and who is undefiled and trusting Him to forgive me of my impurity and my defilement, my sin. See, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners, and because of our sin, we are separated from God. We are distant from God. We're living like the world. We're living for ourselves. We're living with our own goals and values as if God doesn't exist. We're thinking that joy can be found in people and things, not that joy can ultimately be found in God himself. And that people and things can be a gift from God to be enjoyed, but that ultimately God is our joy. That's not how the world thinks. That's not how we think. We naturally think for ourselves, about ourselves. We don't care about God's word. We're not concerned about his holiness. We're concerned about our desires, our pleasures. And so we're sinful by nature. And the Bible teaches that all of us deserve hell because of our sins. But Jesus Christ, perfectly God and perfectly man, comes to life and lives a perfect life. Jesus is perfect. He never sins. He is pure. He is undefiled. He is ritually clean. And Jesus goes to the cross and dies for those who are not pure. He dies for our sins. While we are sinful, He is not. And He gives His life and dies in our place. God the Father, this is the glorious mystery of the Bible that He reveals to us. It's not a hidden mystery. It's now a revealed mystery. That God the Father pours out His judgment for our sin. You should be judged for your sin. But God the Father pours out that judgment on God the Son. 
that Jesus takes our place. And as he's on the cross, God the Father is punishing God the Son, who has done nothing, punishing God the Son for us, for our sins, in our place as a substitute. That's the good news. That's why gospel is good news. Because the pure one dies for the filthy ones. The one who never spoke an uncontrolled word dies for those who speak uncontrollably daily. The one who was never stained by the world. Jesus was in the world. Jesus communicated and was a friend of sinners. He was with sinners, but he never sinned. That one died for our sins, Jesus Christ. So when we turn, if you're not a Christian, you turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he's the one that died for your sins so that you can be right with God. And we turn from our sin and turn to him and believe in what he's done and embrace him as the Lord of our lives. When we do that, then we are connected to Christ. We're with Christ. And we then can have a pure and undefiled religion. The way we can be religious in a pure way is by, first of all, coming to the pure one and becoming a Christian, receiving him by faith, and then having him begin to change our heart where we want to do acts of service because we love him and because he's changed us and because we're grateful and because God lives in us, making us a new person. That's pure and undefiled religion, a religion that flows from the inside of us by the Spirit of God because the word of truth has made us new people. And we're hearers and doers of the word, not to get right with God, but because God's already made us right with himself. And now he's changed our heart. And one of the ways he changes our heart is so that we care about those in need. He says, this religion is before the Father. Isn't it interesting that he gives, calls God Father before he talks about widows and orphans? Because Psalm 68 says that God is a father to the fatherless. And that he is the God who provides he cares for the widow so he cares for orphans and he is the protector of widows the scripture says in james's day these were the two most vulnerable groups of people if you want to talk about needy people it's the widow and the orphan see in james's culture a woman really didn't have a way to earn a living a little bit different in our culture but didn't have a way to earn a living So if her husband died, whether she was young or old, she lost her source of income if she didn't have sons who were old enough to provide for her. So a widow is a person who has no income. There's no social security. And so a widow is not merely a lady whose husband died. A widow is a needy, helpless person who cannot societally, does not have a societal means to provide for herself. That's needy. James says, God the Father cares for the widows. And so real religion is a care for the needy. Also for the orphan. If a, if, an, if a widow was helpless, how much more an orphan who has no parents to provide for him or for her? And uh, as a child, wouldn't be old enough to earn a living. So an orphan is a dependent person, a desperate person, a needy person. And when the gospel has really gripped our hearts, we'll have a heart for the needy because God the Father had a heart for us in our need. See, the Bible says we were adopted. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into God's family. You've been helpless. You cannot save yourself by being good enough. You cannot come to God on your own. You cannot just clean things up and be right with God. You have no way of saving yourself. And so Jesus comes to die for you, to save you. And God opens your eyes to that reality. And God's Spirit gives you new life in your heart so that you believe that truth. 
talk about helpless. We're not only we're helpless, Scripture says we are spiritually dead and God comes to us and grants us new life. And so as those who've received new life, we in turn are to care for the helpless. For we were in a state of helplessness. That's pure religion. Pure religion is a heart that's changed and carries the burdens that are on the Father's heart, the burden He had for us, and thus we have a burden for others who suffer. Now, when it talks about, when James talks about the widow and the orphan, I think he's talking about them because they represent the most needy in his culture, and they represent needy today as well. But I think it could be a broader group. I want to talk about orphans and, and widows as we close. But before I do, I want to say that I think it could be a larger group that we have a heart for hurting people. The poor would be part of this needy group. The homeless would be part of this needy group. Immigrants, legal or illegal, immigrants could be part of this group. People who have need. People with physical limitations. People who have, who have physical limitations and can't, therefore, do for themselves. People who have mental impairments, mental limitations. People who are helpless, that's what's in view here. The unborn would be the helpless as well. The dying, someone with a terminal disease who is dying, that's the needy. How about the bereaved person who's lost someone? They can't do anything to bring that person back. That's a needy person. And the heart of the Father is towards those who have need. And pure religion is a gospel that has connected us to the pure one. And now the pure one is beginning to work purity in our heart so that we have the heart of the Father for those who have needs, including the widow and the orphan. Let me talk a little bit about application. It says here to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. When I read this passage, and I've read it for a few weeks now thinking about today, but when I did... I thought, of the three things he mentions, two of them I can really get and apply, and one of them are hard for me to apply. The speech thing, I get that and can apply it. I understand pretty clearly, probably not clearly enough, but clearly, pretty clearly, areas in my speech that need to be adjusted. And I sort of know where they need to be adjusted and and can trust God to help me adjust my speech in certain areas. The last one being unstained by the world, that one I, I sort of get in some areas too. I think there's some areas in my heart where I am thinking like the world, where I am acting like God doesn't exist, where I am living for myself, where I am greedy or, or pursuing pleasure not ultimately in God but in something that, that, uh, that is, is temporal and not eternal. So I understand that, and I think there's some areas of my life God would have his finger on that I could grow in. But when I get to care for widows and orphans, I, I almost don't even know how to do that. I mean, if I said today, raise your hand if you know one orphan. I'm not doing that. So you didn't. But if I did, most of us in the room don't know. What if I said, name five orphans by name that you're currently in contact with? There might be no hands in the room. Or the issue of widows. It's a little easier. But where are the widows that we can relate to? Um, maybe you have a widow in your family, and in, in our case, oftentimes the needs are different for a widow, I think. I mean, widows in our culture oftentimes have social security um, and uh, maybe some retirement as well. So sometimes widows in our culture do have their needs met, but they still could have other issues like loneliness or um, 
isolation or have some limitations in caring for themselves physically or around their house, uh, for sure. So, but if I said, how many of you could name five or ten widows that we know personally by name? What if we took it outside of our family? Maybe we have a neighbor or someone like that. So I think when we come to applying these, let me start with widows. When we, start, when we come to apply these, I would start with our own family. Is there someone who is a widow or a widower? Because I think the needs are the same in terms of potentially isolation, loneliness, that kind of thing, that you're related to or that you know in your family. That could be a place to start. Um, what about a neighbor? What about someone in your apartment complex or who lives on your block that you could begin to reach out to, that you could begin to provide care for, that you could offer to serve in some way, that you could encourage with your new tongue that goes with your new heart, right? Where could we do that? Maybe there's someone in your life that way. Um, I think that's the starting place. Lord, show us places that we can serve. Show us people that we can reach out to. We also want to let you know today, though, that through our church, we have, become, uh, we have begun a relationship. Several folks in our church have connected, and one of those being Pete, who serves on our staff as a pastor. We've connected with the new assisted living facility. I'm always turned around, which is up Legacy. It's that way. Uh, just a little bit north of here on Legacy. It's called uh, Rambling Oaks Assisted Living Facility. And we have a few people going over there now that have been doing some things, teaching some crafts, someone else teaching some art, uh, an art teacher, and working with some folks that are there. It's a brand new facility, so there's not very many people yet. There's just, as I understand it, maybe a handful over there now, but I think the number I heard was there'll be about 120 or something like that. And through our relationship that's begun with several people in our church with this assisted uh, care living facility, Rambling Oaks, we are now going to begin to do a worship service for the people that live there uh, beginning next Sunday. Now, it's small. It's a small group of people, but it's an opportunity where we can connect down walking distance, down the block to where we meet on Sunday morning. Walking distance from here, there are people that live by themselves, and we don't know them all, or, but some of them certainly are experiencing um, maybe some isolation, some limitations, and they're near and dear to God's heart, and he's not forgotten about them. And so we have an opportunity to carry the Father's heart and reach out to them. So we have someone in our church that is going to lead this effort, and uh, his name is Shane Ed. Shane, are you, would you stand up? I want you to know who Shane is because we're going to pray for him in a little bit. This is Shane. And, and Shane, along with a team that is not yet formed but is in formation, will be going over there starting next Sunday. We start a worship service for them that Shane will be involved in coordinating uh, at 11 o'clock. And so, uh, like I said, there's only a few residents there right now. So I know everybody's excited, especially after hearing this message. I'm excited. I may skip next Sunday and go myself, but uh, I'm excited about it. But there's 40 of us and four of them probably is not the right idea. So we're going to work up to it. And uh, we're hoping to take a piano player or an acoustic, gu- acoustic guitar player. We're leaving the electric guitar and the distortion pedal here on our stage. We're not taking that over there. But if you can play hymns, Uh, on an acoustic guitar or a piano, um, then there'll be a sign-up sheet at the back. If you would like to go as someone to participate or someone to meet the seniors there and relate, you can sign up at the back table, and Shane's going to have a list of people. And what will happen is we'll have somebody that will play some music uh, so they can have a hymn sing, they can worship together and sing, and then Shane will bring a 
some scripture, a Bible study, you know, a brief kind of homily, sermon type thing, or we'll have some other guys that are going to ultimately help him with that, some other musicians. So we're going to work in a number of people. But this is going to be a ministry of our church where we just thought, you know, what can we do? And here it is, right up the street, God's opened a door. So we're very excited about that. So you can pray about that. We're going to pray for Shane in just a minute, and you can participate. Again, if we get more people coming to some of the crafts, things that are going on there and that kind of thing, we may need some more help in some other areas. Right now, it's very small, so again, 40 versus 3 is probably not the right ratio, but as it grows, we want to take more. So right now, we're thinking maybe a family could go a Sunday that signed up with, uh, on the sign-up sheet that Shane could contact. So a family could go, a few singles could go, so, you know, maybe a family and a couple singles a week, and then that will increase and, and grow as things happen. And, you know, we haven't made a commitment that until Christ returns, we're doing that, but we're going to step out and try and see how it goes, and if it's a blessing to them, we'll continue. If it's not a blessing to them, if nobody comes, we won't do it, but we we'll at least take a step of faith and see how it could be a blessing. So that's something we want to let you know about. Um, also, <clears throat> I wanted to talk a little bit this morning as well about orphan care. How do we participate there? Well, in a moment, I'm going to ask a gentleman to come up here. We've invited someone to be with us this morning named Gary Schneider. Uh, Gary is a friend of a number of people in our church, and he leads a ministry called Every Orphan's Hope, and it's based out of Frisco because Gary lives in Frisco. Um, Gary is married. He's been married to his wife, Debbie, for 25 years. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then I'm going to have him come. He has four children. Uh, he, uh, his family, they are members over at Preston Ridge Baptist here in town. So he's part of a local church in our, our city here, and we've just gotten to know him. A number of people in our church have gotten to know him over the years, and I've gotten to know Gary, count him as a friend. Um, and what he does is lead a ministry that's a compassionate evangelistic ministry called Every Orphan's Hope that provides food and clothing and education and health care and the gospel to children who have been orphaned as a result of HIV AIDS in the country of Zambia. And so they do that in a lot of different ways. They, they have child sponsorships. They've built uh, homes for orphans. They do short-term mission trips. Uh, my oldest daughter, Courtney, even was able to go last summer and do a short-term mission trip with Every Orphan's Hope. So that's one way I know about Gary, and I trust him. If you send your young kid to Zambia, you better trust the guy leading the organization that's taking them there, and I do. And we did, and she went. Um, so we commend Gary as a man of God uh, to you. Every Orphan's Hope was founded in 2002. They have provided 48,000 meals to orphans. They've hosted 4,400 orphans at their Camp Hope Bible camps. They do these Bible camps in association with local churches in the area. They've witnessed uh, over 2,000 kids through their years of ministry that have responded uh, to the gospel and trusted Christ as their Savior. They've built 11 homes for orphans and widows, and they've mobilized a number, really thousands of volunteers from the U.S. that have sought to act on James 1.27 in an area that's very needy. He told me that the nation of Zambia is, I think, about the size of Texas, he said, but it has 11 million. The population is 11 million. Of the population of 11 million people, one million of them are orphans. And that is dramatic. Can you imagine in our country if almost 10% of everyone in our country was orphaned because of AIDS, not just orphaned, but orphaned because of the devastation of AIDS that took their parents' lives? So that's a place, and that's a ministry and an outreach that's near to God. We wanted you to meet him. 
And so, and I wanted him to share a little bit with you. So as we wrap up the meeting, Gary, would you come and let's welcome Gary and he's gonna tell you a little bit about every open source. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Thank you, Pastor Craig. And uh, it's just great to be in front of you this morning. I see so many friends in the audience and uh, several of you I can even see uh, this morning that have been with me in Zambia. So we're grateful, I'm grateful to have the opportunity just to share quickly, uh, hopefully something that would be encouraging and maybe an application from what uh, Pastor Craig has preached this morning. We work in Zambia, Africa, and uh, as Craig mentioned, he gave some statistics of the things we've done. Our Camp Hope Bible Camp uh, is a great outreach that we do. Each camp has about 300 orphans in a community that the local church mobilizes and brings and uh, we take over short-term missionaries, and so we're kind of the circus that comes to town, and uh, the local Zambians are there, and we do a week of just ministry to the children, sharing the gospel with them, doing Bible stories, worshiping, praying, feeding, clothing, all those things, and, uh, and it's a wonderful ministry, and you know, as a Westerner, I can look at that, and I can see statistics, I can see we did this, and we did that, and you know, we feel good about that, and it's important. They have great needs. But when we think of pure religion, going and visiting the orphan, I can tell you there's no greater way to test that faith internal as an expression of faith external than to sit in front of an orphan who really does have nothing and no one to depend on. And you can feed them and you can clothe them and you can do all these things that are measurable. But at the end of the day, what they need is Jesus Christ. And that's what every orphan's hope desires to give them. I just want to share a quick story of a young boy that Brian Smith and I had the, just the honor of meeting. Uh, his name is Ofri. It was uh, June of 2008. We were at a Camp Hope Bible camp in the second day of camp, and uh, we had about 300 kids there, and Brian and I are doing our thing, and, and the camp is going wonderfully, and our director comes up and says, there's a boy who has been wanting to come to this camp for months. He had heard about it from his pastor but he's been sick in bed for three weeks now. He has HIV AIDS, and he's really sick, and he can't be here at camp. Would you go visit him? And, you know, my first thought is the mercy ministries are not my greatest gift, the bedside uh, ministry. of That's just not me. Uh, I like James. It's an action book. I, I can go do things. But that was a little overwhelming to think to go visit just this one boy. So Brian and I went. We met Ofri. It was a very tough condition that he was in, and... Uh, you know, we humbly just uh, went there to pray for him. And we did pray for him. And, and in that prayer time, we actually had the boldness to ask God that before camp was o over, that Ofri could come and partake. And so we left there, and by faith, we just prayed that over Ofri. And I had to leave the country the day after, but the testimony is that Ofri, on the last day of camp, was able to come. On his own strength, the pastor brought him. And all 300 of those kids who had been at camp that day or that week had been praying for Ofri. They'd heard about his situation, and they wanted to see him come, and he came, and he was a great encouragement to everyone at Camp Hope. But, you know, it's, it's that, that pure religion aspect of it uh, that is so tested when we deal with orphans. A year later, in June of this year, I was back in Zambia, and I got a call from our staff that Ofri was in very bad shape. And I went to visit him in the hospice, and... Um, he couldn't speak. He was in the last days of life. Uh, HIV-AIDS had overtaken his body. 
And uh, all he could do was open his eyes when I was there. And I shared with him who I was, and I could tell by the expression in his eyes he remembered me. And you know, it's really tough to pray for a, a young child in that position. But as I looked into his eyes, he didn't have to say a word. I saw Jesus Christ in him. And I knew that peace was with him. I knew he was about to go and meet his, his Lord and Savior. And, uh, but I have to tell you, that's a humbling place to be. Uh, to have that honor to go and to speak words of encouragement, to visit the orphan in their distress and their affliction. And really, all you have to give them is Jesus Christ, and he's all they need. Mm. So I just want to thank uh, Pastor Craig and all the folks that have been a part of our ministry uh, through Grace Church. Uh, Very grateful for the prayers, for the giving, for the going that you have done, and uh, we hope to be a part of your church uh, in the future as well. Thank Mm. you, Craig. Thank you. Thank you. Hold that. Can you stay up here just a second? Stay up here. Please. Pete, can I give you that? Um, one other thing I want to let you know, if you can be praying about our office building, I mean our, our building closing, and obviously we'll be meeting there, we'll have office space there. I think we mentioned in the family meeting this summer that we'll have some extra space so that we were thinking maybe we would have a tenant, I think we said, or something like that, as to would sublease space from us. Well, Gary is that, and, and his staff, someone who works with him, would be uh, hopefully subleasing some space from us. So he's not only someone that's been a friend to us, but he's our office buddy. And so uh, he likes us now, but let him share a refrigerator with Pete, Rob, and I, and we'll see if you still like us. I'm a little concerned about that. Hosanna's great, but the three of us, if we're in the same office, I, we can't make any promises. Um, but, Gary, we want to thank you, and as well, we want to just be able, as a church, to give a gift to Every Orphan's Hope to you, and this is uh, something to support your ministry as you guys reach out to care uh, for AIDS orphans. And also, we wanted to just, as a church, wanted to have him here. This is kind of a missions month. And uh, so I wanted to have him here. We talked about our ministry through Sovereign Grace Ministries for the last three weeks, um, but also wanted to have Gary, since he's close by and his ministry uh, connects to the passage today, and I asked him to set up his table in the back. So if you would like some literature, you could pray for them and find out more about them uh, and what they do. You could uh, see how the Lord would speak to if you somehow wanted to support them or travel with them or whatever. I don't know, but at least pray for them. And want to let you know that's available if you'd like to meet Gary personally. He'll be at the back table. Um, and we just appreciate you. And this is one connection we have um, with an ability to have someone in our town and, in fact, hopefully in our office, our office is next to us anyway there, uh, that we can partner with. So we'd like to close by just praying for these two ministries, one that's directly from our church that you can jump on board with in the, in the uh, assisted care. So, Shane, would you come down? Don't have a check for you, but we want to pray for you. Uh, but we will give you a check. If you need something, hymnals, whatever you need over there, we will, we're taking care of that. So Rob and Pete, if you guys could come up. We want to pray for both of these gentlemen and their ministries uh, and to pray uh, for Shane as well as he's going to be leading us. And I, I communicated in the first service and just want to say again to you, Shane, that we appreciate you. If you know Shane at all, uh, you know he is a man with a compassionate heart. He's a man who... Um, anybody's grandma or grandpa would love Shane. We just thought, who, who would the grandparents like? And we thought of Shane. And so, uh, but he's also a man of God who loves God's word. So he'll be going over there and doing some, you know, uh, teaching and also coordinating. And he'll have some other people teaching and leading music with him and all that kind of stuff. So Shane, thank you for being willing to step into this ministry and take us as a church into something new that we haven't done before. Uh, but thank you for 
uh, being willing to lead something that will be a vehicle to enable us to try to obey this passage, these two verses of Scripture. Um, and uh, I know you're, God's going to use you in a, in a wonderful way. I want to pray for you today as well as Gary, uh, both you guys. So thanks, Shane. I appreciate you guys. Join us as we just pray for these. these. God, we first of all this morning thank you for our brother Gary here and uh, the way you've opened doors for him. Thank you for what you've done through every orphan's hope and the lives that have been touched through physical needs, but as he said, much more through the gospel. And Lord, we thank you that we will uh, in eternity worship you with some orphaned kids in Zambia that have been led to Christ through this ministry. So we thank you for that. We pray great blessing on them. We pray for Gary and Debbie that you would protect them as a couple and their family, that you would keep them healthy and strong for this ministry. We pray that you would grant them open doors to expand what they're doing, that, uh, uh, that you would use them fruitfully. I pray that you would continue to give him favor with the pastors in those cities that he works with in Zambia and open doors to work with new pastors and new churches as he comes alongside them and provides things that they materially could not provide. Um, so we just pray that you would give them all they need in the way of resources and people and that you would give them good relationships, that they would just be a blessing to those churches and a blessing to those orphans, and that you would just prosper their ministry, make it fruitful for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name, and we thank you for uh, our friendship with Gary and just look forward to working with him in the future and just pray for blessing upon him and his ministry. And Lord, we also pray for Shane today, and we ask you to bless him as he's stepping out in this new venture uh, in our church, Lord, we're grateful for an opportunity to have seniors in walking distance at Rambling Oaks. And Lord, we pray that you would give us connections there, that we could bring the gospel. Lord, just as we pray for orphaned children to meet Christ, we pray for seniors to meet Christ. Lord, we pray that those who may be in their final years over there, Lord, would meet the Savior. Lord, by your grace, it is never too late. Lord, you save people at all points in their life. And Lord, it would be our great desire to reach some people that feel isolated and perhaps alone, to reach them with the gospel and see them meet you. And maybe there'd be some there who can't really get out to worship in a church. We pray that we could come alongside them and uh, that you'd build a little community of folks there, Lord, that we could be an encouragement to through the word and through song, Lord. So we just ask you for both of these ministries, Lord, we know that your heart is towards those in need. And there's many in need around us, but these two specific opportunities we pray for and we pray, Lord, that you'd give us new speech that matches the new heart you've put within us. We pray that you'd give us, by the power of the gospel, the ability to be a light in the darkness and not to blend into the darkness, that we'd be unstained by the world, that we'd be a living testimony, whether in Zambia, at Rambling Oaks, in our neighborhood, Lord, uh, in our workplaces, that we would be a living testimony of those who've been gripped by a pure religion, an internally transformed heart by the gospel. And may we see many others as well experience this. So pray for, we just pray for Shane and for Gary and their ministries. And Lord, our ministry as a church as well in this, uh, in this assisted living care facility. Thank you today. Change us, Lord, and use us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.